0: This is C-SPAN's The Weekly. I'm Steve Scully in Washington. The party conventions are over, the fall campaign now underway, and the debates are about to begin. In fact, televised debates making their first mark back in 1960, when the two leading presidential candidates met in a Chicago television studio, beginning a new era in American politics. Good evening. The television and radio stations of the United States and their affiliated
1: stations are proud to provide facilities for a discussion of issues in the current political campaign by the two major candidates for the presidency. The candidates need no introduction. The Republican candidate, Vice President Richard M. Nixon, and the Democratic candidate, Senator John F. Kennedy.
0: That was 1916. It would be another 16 years before the debates would resume, but since then, they have been part of the political landscape in every presidential election. And one person has been part of that process for more than 60 years. Newt Minow is a Chicago based lawyer, a longtime member of the Commission on Presidential Debates, and he is the author of the book Inside the Presidential Debates Their Improbable Past and Promising Future. Our conversation is just ahead. Newton Minow is joining us on the phone from Chicago. Thanks very much for being with us. Glad to be with you, Steve. Let me begin with the overarching question that is often asked with these presidential debates. And that is, do the debates, the three presidential, the one vice presidential debate this year, do they reinforce how a person votes or do they truly sway the mind of a voter?
2: I think they do both. I think probably for most people, uh, if you could break it down, I think for most people it probably reinforces their view. And for some people who still haven't made up their mind at the time of the debates, uh, it it can have a uh, significant influence on their thinking.
0: As you know, another part of the debate process is whether or not to accept a third-party presidential candidate. And so what is your view on that at this late stage in the campaign? What should the criteria be?
2: Well, this is the most difficult question of all for the sponsors of the debate. I've been involved from the beginning with the League of Women Voters, now with the Commission on Presidential Debates, and We have this, adopted the same criterion. Uh, criteria, I should say. You have to be... Eligible under the Constitution, which means you have to be uh, born of the U.S. and at least 35 years old. You have to be uh, on enough ballots so that numerically you had a chance to win the election. And uh, third, you have to have at least 15% support in the average of the five leading national public opinion polls. I think that's a fair assessment. It's been tested many times in the courts. It's been upheld every every time. And uh, unfortunately, you can't accommodate uh, more than 200 candidates for president. So you have to draw a line. And I think the line we've drawn is a fair one.
0: Another debate, real-time fact-checking, especially in today's political environment. You've been hearing the argument What can a debate do, if anything, in terms of keeping the candidates accountable for what they say?
2: We think the uh, real fact-checker has to be the opponent, Uh, plus uh, the media, who will immediately uh, respond after the debate. Uh, I think if there's a really blatant uh, error... Uh, it should be pointed out, but basically the idea is to let the candidates uh, deal with the facts and let the public and make their, make their own judgments.
0: You write about many of this in your book, Inside the Presidential Debates: Their Improbable Past and Promising Future. And in one part in the book, you talk about your work with Adelaide Stevenson back in 1959 that you say led to the idea of televised debates and, in John Kennedy's words, led to his election in 1960. So what's the story?
2: Well, it really began in 1956 um, when Stevenson ran against uh, uh, General and then President Eisenhower. Eisenhower had had a heart attack in '55. And I, as an assistant to uh, Stevenson and as one of his law partners, suggested that instead of uh, running around breathlessly all over the country as candidates were were usually doing, that there be a series of televised discussions or debates where the public, the voters, could assess the candidates through the real-stroke, quite new medium of television. Uh, That never happened. It was regarded as a gimmick. It was never even seriously proposed. But then in um, 1960, the broadcasters wanted to have uh, debates, and they were petitioning Congress to give them an exemption from the equal time law. And the senators invited um, Adlai Stevenson to testify, having been a candidate uh, twice for president. And I, as the junior member of the law firm, was drafted to, was assigned to draft uh, Adlai's testimony, uh, which I did. And Adlai's testimony, I think, was quite influential in persuading the, the Congress that they should exempt the uh, 1960 presidential election from the equal time law, which led to the Kennedy Nixon debate.
0: We have pulled together some moments from past debates, including that very first debate that took place September 26th, 1960, and I want to play an excerpt of what then-Senator Kennedy responded to the issue of his experience, and then listen carefully at the end of how then-Vice President Richard Nixon responded.
3: I come out of the Democratic Party, which in this century has produced Woodrow Wilson and Franklin Roosevelt and Harry Truman, and which supported and sustained these programs which I've discussed tonight. Mr. Nixon comes out of the Republican Party. He was nominated by it. And it is a fact that through most of these last 25 years, the Republican leadership has opposed federal aid for education, medical care for the aged, development of the Tennessee Valley, development of our natural resources. I think Mr. Nixon is an effective leader of his party. I hope he would grant me the same. The question before us is, which point of view and which party do we want to lead the United States?
1: Mr. Nixon, would you like to comment on that statement?
3: I have no comment.
0: That's from the first of four presidential debates in 1960. Newton Minow, you've heard that before, but what was your reaction?
2: Well, I I knew um, Jack Kennedy before the debate, so I was not surprised that he demonstrated in the debate the maturity, uh, the judgment, the presence, the character, the personality that he showed. Uh, I think the country, of course, didn't know Jack Kennedy. And I think that he uh, introduced himself uh, to the voters in a way that they had not uh, thought of him before. So that was very important.
0: And of course, there was a 16-year gap between the Kennedy-Nixon debates and the Ford-Carter debates in 1976, a looming reason, of course, President Lyndon Baines Johnson and Richard M. Nixon. So what's the backstory?
2: Well, unlike 1960, when Congress exempted uh, the debates from the equal time law, the then presidents, President Johnson and then President Nixon, didn't want a debate, so they simply passed word to Congress that they should not change the law. In 1976, The Federal Communications Commission, without a new law by Congress, reinterpreted the Federal Communications Act uh, exemption from the equal time law, which exempted news programs, and the Federal Communications Commission decided to exempt debates as being a news program. That led the League of Women Voters to conduct the debate and... uh, uh, my they they asked me to help them organize it because they'd asked the uh man who'd organized the nineteen sixty debate Frank Stanton, who was the head of c b s to do it and he couldn't do it because he was still involved in broadcasting this had to be a a a, a non profit uh sponsor. He recommended me and I was surprised because when I inquired in getting uh President Johnson and then Governor Carter, whether they were willing to debate, both of them were willing, and that's how we organized
0: it. And you outline that in Chapter 3 of your book. At that point, President Gerald Ford, America's only appointed president, was down more than 30 points in the polls, although the gap did narrow until this moment, October 6, 1976. Let's listen.
1: There is no Soviet domination, of Eastern Europe, and there never will be under a Ford administration. Uh, I, I'm sorry. Could I just follow? did I understand you to say, sir, that the Russians are not using Eastern Europe as their own sphere of influence and occupying mo- most of the countries there, and, and and making sure with their troops that it's a that it's a communist zone? Whereas on our side of the line, the Italians and the French are still flirting with I don't believe, uh, Mr. Frankel that uh, the Yugoslavians consider themselves dominated by the Soviet Union. I don't believe that the Romanians consider themselves dominated by the Soviet Union. I don't believe that the Poles consider themselves dominated by the Soviet Union. Each of those countries is independent, autonomous. It has its own territorial integrity. And the United States does not concede that those countries are under the domination of the Soviet Union.
0: That from October of 1976. And as you remember, the Ford campaign initially doubling down on that before finally admitting that the president had made a mistake. Why was that such a critical moment in that race? And how did it shape well, the outcome?
2: I was there at the debate in the hall, and believe believe it or not it went right by me i didn't uh, wasn't conscious of some major mistake the press treated it as a major mistake and the the media did uh, i understand understood what uh, president ford was saying and I, th- I think he was wrong but i don't i don't think that the uh, what he said had that much effect on the election because as he pointed out to uh, in a conversation with me later, he was 32 points behind when the debate started, and at the time of the election, he almost won.
0: 12 years later, there was another moment in another debate with then Massachusetts Governor Michael Dukakis and Vice President George H.W. Bush, and this question from Bernie Shaw of CNN. The first question
3: goes to Governor Dukakis. You have two minutes to respond. Governor, if Kitty Dukakis were raped and murdered, would you favor an irrevocable death penalty for the killer? No, I don't, Bernard, and I think you know that I've opposed the death penalty during all of my life. Uh, I don't see any evidence that it's deterrent, and I think there are better and more effective ways to deal with violent crime. We've done so in my own state.
0: And so when experts study presidential debates, Newt Minow, they often refer to that moment. Why?
2: Well, I think they refer to it correctly because it was a very, very big mistake on the part of Governor Dukakis. Uh, In a conversation with him later, he told me he made a very bad mistake by not responding first by how terrible he would feel and how outrageous it was that uh, this had happened to his wife. So he did make a mistake, and uh, again, uh, I think probably too much attention is paid to these uh, flubs uh, in in terms of judging a person uh, more broadly instead of in one particular incident, incident. We all make mistakes.
0: So if you could change anything about the general election presidential debates what would it be
2: well i would have the, i would go to a classical formal uh, form of debate rather than questions uh, i would have each of them try to make their own case uh, each of them question each other uh, and have a, uh, a more direct uh, but uh, that we, we've tried that the league has tried that the commission has tried that The candidates don't want to do do that. The candidates' advisors tell them, you don't want to appear to be a mean, uh, critical person. You you want to have the press ask the questions, not yourself.
0: Do you think that that would be any different in 2020 with President Trump and former Vice President Joe Biden?
2: Well, it's unlikely. (laughs) It's hard to predict what's going to happen this time. And our
0: listeners might find it interesting. I know
2: this. Be- uh, the public will benefit greatly by having an interchange between the two candidates.
0: Our audience might find this interesting because, as you outline in the book, there are negotiations on everything from is there water, where they sit or stand, the height of the podium. Is this all the after effects of the very first debate in 1960, the Kennedy-Nixon debates, in which many people thought that Vice President Nixon didn't look strong, didn't look well, compared to Senator Kennedy?
2: Well, I th- I think the the most important thing is that we use this extraordinary medium of broadcasting, of, of television and uh, radio, to enable every person in the United States To witness uh, the candidates together, to evaluate them, to see how they think on their feet, to be in a a situation where they can't control the format, where there are are no commercials, where people have a chance to see what kind of person they are, what kind of intellect they have, what kind of uh, personality and character... That, that's priceless for uh, a, a democratic process.
0: One of the more recent debates back in October 2016. And so let's uh, set the framework for this exchange because the Access Hollywood video was released uh, the previous Friday. Hillary Clinton and Donald Trump meeting in a town hall format on October the 9th in St. Louis. And here's an exchange between Hillary Clinton and Donald Trump.
2: What
1: we all saw and heard on Friday was Donald talking about women, what he thinks about women, what he does to women. And he has said that the video doesn't represent who he is. But I think it's clear to anyone who heard it that it represents exactly who he is.
2: That was locker room
1: talk. Uh, I'm not proud of it. I am a person who has
2: great respect for people, for my family, for the people of this country. And certainly I'm not proud of it, but that was something that uh, happened. If you look at uh, Bill Clinton, far worse, minor words, and his was action.
1: His was what he's done to women. There's never been anybody in the history of politics in this nation that's been so abusive to women. So you can say any way
2: you want to say it, but Bill Clinton was abusive to women.
0: Newt Minow, was then-Republican nominee Donald Trump effective in shifting the focus away from him in that debate?
2: Well, it seems it seemed to me that the country was able to see uh, and hear uh, both candidates and um, made up its own mind. Uh, and uh, we, we can all wonder, and uh, some of us are baffled by it, but uh, it, was a, it was a fair chance for, for the public to witness uh, both candidates in action.
0: Of course, there will once again be a vice presidential debate. The first one took place in 1976 between then-Senator Walter Mondale and Senator Bob Dole. There have been now three women on the ticket the first was 1984 with Representative Geraldine Ferraro. We'll be looking now for the third debate with Vice President Pence and California Senator Kamala Harris. But here is the exchange on October 11th, 1984, between then-Vice President Bush and Congresswoman Geraldine Ferraro.
3: I think I just heard Mrs. Ferraro say that she would do away with all covert action. And if so, that has very serious ramifications, as the intelligence community knows. This is serious business. And sometimes it's quiet support for a friend. Uh, And so I'll I'll leave that one there. But let me help you with the difference, Ms. Ferraro, between Iran and the embassy in Lebanon. Iran, we were held by a foreign government. In, in, In Lebanon, you had a wanton terrorist action where the government opposed it. We went to Lebanon to give peace a chance, to stop the bombing of civilians in Beirut, to remove 13,000 terrorists from Lebanon, we did. We saw the formation of a government of reconciliation, and for somebody to suggest, as our two opponents have, that these men died in shame, they better not tell the parents of those young Marines. They gave peace a chance, and our allies were with us, the British, the French, and the Italians.
2: Congressman Farrar.
1: Let me just say, first of all, that I almost resent, Vice President Bush, your patronizing attitude that you have to teach me about foreign policy. I've been a member of Congress for six years. I was there when the embassy was held hostage in Iran, and I have been there, and I have seen what has happened in the past several months, 17 months, with your administration. Secondly, please don't categorize my answers either. Leave the interpretation of my answers to the American people who are watching this debate.
0: That from 1984, what's your reaction to that?
2: Well, President Bush used the uh, unfortunate phrase, he said, let me help you, which I think a lot of women, uh, including uh, Congresswoman Ferraro, uh, resented. Uh, But uh, as we all know, the results of the election... And again, I repeat what I said earlier about the other others. This this gives the voters a a chance to evaluate both candidates and um, make up their own minds.
0: Let me remind our listeners, we're talking with Newton Minow. He served as the FCC commissioner during the Kennedy administration. He is joining us on the phone from Chicago. And as you look at the political landscape in 2020 and the three debates coming up for the presidential candidates... What will you be looking for?
2: I would be, I would be looking for, for, for first of all the, the, to listen and the, uh, hear what they have to say, but also I want to know what kind of judgment uh, they have, what kind of character, uh, what 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 kind of intellect, what kind of uh, personality. I, I want to know more about them as as human beings. I want to know how I think they would react under a crisis. Uh, whether they would exercise good judgment. That's what I think we should be looking for in the president. Just sit
1: right back and you'll hear a tale, a tale of a fateful trip.
0: That, of course, from the 1960s and the hit comedy Gilligan's Island. Why are we playing that? Well, Newt Minow, what is your connection to that sitcom?
2: Well, Sherwood Schwartz, the creator of Gilligan's Island didn't like the uh, speech I gave when I uh, became chairman of the FCC uh, in which I asked broadcasters to do a better job and he decided he'd get even with me by naming the boat that sunk uh, after me it was called the SS Minnow later um, Sherbert Schwartz and I had a wonderful uh, correspondence uh, trading uh, comments with each other And I now have a um, lifesaver from the Gilligan's Island ship, which I have given its display uh, shortly, I think, at the Chicago History Museum here in Chicago.
0: Well, this is what you said on May 9th, 1961, a speech that people still talk about today, the audience, the National Association of Broadcasters.
1: When television is bad, nothing is worse. I invite each of you to sit down in front of your own television set when your station goes on the air. Keep your eyes glued to that set until the station signs off. I can assure you that what you will observe is a vast wasteland. You will see a procession of game shows, formula comedies about totally unbelievable families, blood and thunder, mayhem, violence, sadism, murder, western bad men, western good men, private eyes gangsters, more violence and cartoons, and endlessly commercials, many screaming, cajoling and offending, and most of all, boredom. True, you'll see a few things you will enjoy, but they will be very, very few. And if you think I exaggerate, I only ask you to try it.
0: That from Newt Minow's speech back in May of 1961. And back then, there were really only, what, two and a half networks, not even three full-fledged networks. So much has changed in the last 59, 60 years. Well,
2: uh, one one thing, of course, that's changed, this was long before C-SPAN. Thank God for C-SPAN.
0: Well, we appreciate that. (laughs) But as you look at the media landscape, how has everything changed from your speech in 1961?
2: Well, the main thing uh, that we were determined to do was to enlarge choice, to give the viewer a greater range of choice. We certainly succeeded in that. We now have uh, cable. We now have satellite television. We now have public television, which I'm very proud of. We now have institutions like C-SPAN where you can see things in the government yourself directly and make up your own mind. Uh, so we've expanded choice. On the other hand, what I worry about is that there's no longer any agreement on facts. Uh, we now are, have a country divided in what they think is true. That's a very dangerous thing in a democracy.
0: What prompted you to use the word vast wasteland?
2: Well, I had a friend who was a gifted writer, John Bartlow Martin, who volunteered to do a draft of a speech for me, and he did. And he, what he wrote was, vast wasteland of junk. Vast wasteland of junk. I simply crossed off of junk, and the, never paying any attention to the two words, but vast wasteland. What I cared about were two other words. The two words I cared about were public interest. That's what I wanted the broadcasters to understand.
0: If you could make any changes in terms of how presidential candidates run for office, whether it means more debates or more access to journalists asking questions, more town meetings, what would Newt Minow change, if anything?
2: I would change everything. I would change so we went to a system, as is true in most other countries, where candidates cannot purchase time, that time is allocated as a public service by broadcasters, and that um, we would take a lot of the money out of politics. That's the the first thing I would do. And I would have more debates rather than
0: less. Has the FCC changed since you served in the early 1960s? And if so, how?
2: Well, it's changed, I think, greatly. Uh, The main thing is the technology has changed. And as a result, the Internet, rather than broadcasting, is occupying more of the most of the FCC's attention and time. And the Internet is is presenting uh, many perplexing, uh, difficult regulatory problems that we haven't solved yet.
0: Because, as you know, everyone can have an opinion, express their views on social media and on the Web. So is that a good thing or a bad thing?
2: Well, it's a good thing, except it seems to me that there's a very big danger that we can have foreign countries, particularly the Russians, uh, interfering in our elections by misleading people.
0: In the conclusion of your book, you say that debates are, quote, a great and enduring tradition, a public service. And you touched on this a moment ago. But what worries you the most about these debates? Because we have had them, really a debate uh, since 1976, although in 1980 we only had one between then-President Jimmy Carter and challenger Ronald Reagan. But they have become part of the fabric, part of the tradition in America's electoral politics.
2: Well, what worries me the most are the debates that are run in the primaries. Uh, our debate commission and the legal voters had nothing to do with that. But the primary debates are run by broadcasters who are invite audiences to scream and yell and interfere. Uh, they try to use their own stars as, to promote them. They they lack dignity. They ask people uh, a complicated uh, public. Uh, question and ask them to raise their hands if yes or no. Uh, so I think the the primary debates. I think I'm I'm ashamed of.
0: You were born in 1926, so I will let our listeners do the math. But uh, let's catch up on Newt Minow. What are you doing these days?
2: Well, with with the pandemic, I'm um, not in my office. Uh, I'm particularly proud of of our family. I've got. Three daughters are all lawyers, all doing good, all doing public service, and um, th- three grandchildren, all the same way. So I feel that um, uh, the country will survive. The, the country has survived riots, wars, depressions, pandemics before. Will survive this one, and will go on to continue to be the greatest country in the world.
0: And, of course, your career has really covered the arc of uh, the last century-plus, but in particular, your relationship with John F. Kennedy. As you look back, what's your favorite story?
2: Well, I I tried to get John F. Kennedy the vice presidential nomination, which uh, Abbey Stevenson had to make the decision of who would be his running mate in 56 at the Democratic Convention. And I was very much for for Jack Kennedy. Uh, 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 but Bob Kennedy, particularly, was my close friend, and uh, the, I got, grew to know, to know the whole family. Uh, I thought Jack Kennedy and I were of the same generation that served in World War II in the military, I felt very deeply what he said in his inaugural address, asked not what what your country can do for you, ask what you can do for your country. That was our generation. And uh, I only wish that life had not been cut so short for him because he still had a great deal to contribute to our country.
0: And more recently, in 1988, a young law professor by the name of Barack Obama is brought to your attention. What's the story, and how did Michelle Obama become a factor in all of this?
2: My daughter Martha... uh, still is a law professor at Harvard Law School. She later became the dean, but then she was teaching and she called me up one day and she said that she knew that my law firm did not hire uh first-year law students for as summer interns. We waited till they finished their second year, but she said I've got one that's so exceptional that you ought to take at least take a look at him. I said, "What's his name?" She said Barack Obama. I said, "You'll have to spell that for me." And she did. I called our hiring partner, John Levy, and told him about it, and he started to laugh. I said, what are you laughing about? It's not funny. He said, we've hired him already. He was in here yesterday for an interview, and I could see that he was exceptional. We hired him on the spot. And I'm turning him over to our young associate, Michelle Robinson, to be his supervisor next summer. Well, Michelle Robinson is now Michelle Obama, and the rest is history.
0: That's from Newt Minow, former FCC commissioner. His book, Inside the Presidential Debates, Their Improbable Past and a Promising Future. Thank you for joining us on C-SPAN. We appreciate it.
2: Well, Steve, thank you, and good luck to you on being a moderator.
0: I appreciate that. And thank you for listening. I'm Steve Scully in Washington.